Appreciate you, man. All right, so hey, uh, time to get into it. Uh, we're going to be hitting a lot of Bible today, so I would encourage you to just check out the slides, though, if you want to try and follow along. Eventually, we will land in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 21. Uh, let me just pray before we get started here and ask God to speak to us through his word. Uh, so, Father, we just thank you that you are with us. Lord, we thank you for the community that we experience with you and in you um, and just all the ways that you have made it possible for us to rest and to relax in your presence. And so, God, I just ask that whatever else I say today and whatever else happens, Lord, that you just would help us to, uh, to do that and to be able to rest and trust you and to trust each other um, and to just enjoy the rest that you have for us. I just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so today I am trying to answer this question, well, why, why do we have to work at getting rest? And like, how do we do Sabbath well? We're kind of talking about Sabbath today. And the reason I'm talking about that is, honestly, it, it is part of the character of God. It is who God is. God is a God who enables us and empowers us and wants us to rest. And isn't that good news? Like, isn't that kind of like a nice idea? When you, when you think about that idea, doesn't it just kind of like, ah, doesn't it just sort of like take the pressure off? But I think that uh, it, it's kind of novel in a way, right? Like, it's kind of novel. It's kind of maybe not the first think of, thing we think of when we think of God. Like, sometimes I think maybe we can think of God as like a boss or like uh, maybe like a really overbearing dad that is like, you know, making us do our chores or something, or like uh, just, yeah, maybe that's just not the first thing we think of uh, when we think of God. And so, uh, you know, I just want to kind of try to reframe God's character and, and the centrality of this idea of Sabbath, of taking a day to honor God and to rest with God, and just how important that is in our rhythms of life. Uh, and doing that through the lens of Jesus' life and ministry. You know, Jesus said this in uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He said this. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's more. All right, yeah, take my yoke upon you. <laughs> there you go. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is who Christ's character is. That's the promise that he makes to us because that's who he is. He wants us to enjoy rest. And while he talks about this idea of a yoke, right? So the image of a yoke is that's that thing that you put over the backs of the ox. Like the, if you have a couple of oxen, you have a yoke of oxen. Uh, you know, there are Bible verses, especially in Romans, it talks about being equally yoked. You know, you want to be on pace with a person. If you're going into business with them or you're getting married or whatever, you want to you have somebody who's going to walk about the same pace, move about the same strength as you. You're going to be equally yoked. Um, but, uh, but the image here, right here, is you're saying, well, Jesus has a yoke. He has a burden. He has a job. He has duties or work for us to do. In fact, God created people with work to do, and so that's not... That's not necessarily all bad, but, but the idea here is that you're, you're yoked with Jesus, right? And so, like, like, you're one of the oxes, and Jesus is the other ox, and you guys have this burden on top of you. But if you're walking with Jesus, who's, who's doing the heavy lifting? 
who's really, who's really caring? You, you have a role to play. You, you walk alongside with Jesus, but, but who's, who's, really, who's really, you know, doing the, the bulk of the force of plowing that earth or doing whatever work that yoke of oxen is doing? Who's carrying the cart? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is doing the heavy lifting, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. If you're, if you're yoked with him, if you're walking alongside Jesus, and he is walking with your life, helping you carry your burdens, uh, good news, good news. Uh, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And if you come to him, he'll give you rest. He'll give you relief. He'll unburden you. He'll help you find rest for your soul. Of course, this is exactly like the, the character of God from the beginning of creation. You know, we remember that Jesus was with God in the beginning. And so when we look at Genesis, it says this, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And uh, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And so you can see people had a job, right? They, they, their job was to rule. Their job was to uh, ex- exercise control or exercise dominion over the earth. And God is blessing them in that work. Uh, and saying, you know, here, I'm giving you the authority to do this job. I'm giving you the authority to be my image. Uh, the, the word there is also, you could translate it as idol, right? So there's this idea that, like, uh, when people make idols, uh, we make a graven image, and then that's forbidden, right? Because that doesn't honor God. But when God makes an image, it's alive. And so when you look into the eyes of another human being, you're looking into someone who is supposed to reveal something about God to you uh, because they are created in his image. Okay, that's kind of a, a woo-woo out there idea, and we could talk more about that for another time. But in verse 30, I think it says, or maybe it's verse, two, verse 1 of the next chapter. I can't remember what comes next. On the next slide, it says this. Uh, oh, yeah, and then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And then in verse uh, 31, it says, God saw that all that he had made, and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then we get to the seventh day, and it says this, uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so then that refrain that happens all throughout the creation story, all throughout the kind of creation liturgy, if you will, of there was evening, there was morning, the, the, the first day, there was evening, there was morning, the second day, there was evening, there was morning, the third day, etc., etc. That doesn't appear on the seventh day. Now, on the seventh day, there's this rest, there's this end, there's this finality, there's this completion, there's wholeness to the work of creation, and then after that, there's rest. 
And so really the message here, the, the message that, is, that contrasts to the other creation stories in the ancient Near East or in, the, uh, in that region of time where this, this story came, if you look at the, the creation stories of the Egyptian gods or the, the Babylonian gods or the, you know, other, other cultures around that time, their stories all involve uh, the world mostly is created out of violence. Right? There's always some kind of intrigue, like violent story of creation, like gods fighting each other or something. Like uh, if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, like uh, the, the, the story is that, um, that human beings were like, uh, you know, like the blood that was spilled after one god killed another god or something like that. And then, those god, and then the human beings are to exist as slaves and servants of these other gods. Like that was kind of like, their purpose. Their purpose was to work and serve and to provide food and to provide, uh, you know, whatever kind of uh, wealth and power to uh, the gods of the nations, which the gods of the nations uh, a lot of times also kind of have like a figurehead in the head of that state, right? And so, uh, and so the gods of the nations around Israel, uh, it's, it's all this kind of like worship of this structure of power. It's all meant to serve whoever's at the top of that thing. So, raw, uh, you know, or the pharaoh would be kind of like the incarnate god of that nation. And you see that a lot in the ancient Near East, that the, the person who is there, you know, you see, actually see like a, a terrible version of this in European history with the idea of the divine right of kings, right? Like trying to take Christianity and sort of make it this same idea of whoever is at the top, you serve them, that's their thing. But here's the gospel. The, the real god the creator God, the God who made everything, the righteous judge who sits on the throne, the Alpha and Omega, the God of the universe revealed in Jesus Christ is a God who has designed you not to, not to be a slave, but to rest and to rule and to enjoy him and to enjoy the creation that he's made and to exercise dominion and to enjoy a life of love and relationship with God in which you enjoy the blessings of his power flowing through you. God is a God who gives power away. God is a God who serves us, right? It's this upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom, but it's not like any kingdom on earth. It's totally, totally the other way. And so God's character and God's care is one of love. It's one of mutuality, and God has designed us to enjoy him and rest. That's the end. That's the finality. That's the design of creation. Of course, we know how the story goes. You read the rest of Genesis 2 and 3, and it's a really tragic, sad story where people don't stay there. They don't, you know, it's like make it as easy as possible. Just don't eat this one fruit from this one tree. And what would people do? What would I do? In that situation, you tell me I can't do a thing, I'm going to go do that thing, right? Like, I want to go do that thing. Like, that's, I don't know, that's just in me. I don't know if, maybe it's not in you, but that's in me for sure. And so, and so uh, you know, things fall apart. Things get hairy. They get bad fast. And it, you, you read Genesis, and it's just like this downward spiral, right? People killing each other, uh, people abusing each other, all kinds of weird sex stuff. I mean, it's like, it's awful. Like, it's awful. People are just awful, and uh, boy, you know, guess what? People today are just as awful. Uh, and people in the ancient world, uh, you know, pe- people are the same, right? Like there's not really, 
you know, the more ch things change, the more, the more they stay the same. We, don't, we haven't gotten that much better to each other uh, just through the use of technology. All you have to do is go on the internet and you can find all kinds of terribleness, right? Like we invent ways of doing evil. That's kind of how we are. And so, but the good news here is that God doesn't, doesn't just leave it in that tragedy. God creates a plan. It immediately he says, uh, you know, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent and, and the offspring of the woman, and uh, he will strike your heel, but he will crush your head, right? You know, the, the serpent is going down, right? The, the tempter is going down. The, the forces of spiritual darkness animated in the nations of the world are going down. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. And God starts that and, and does that powerfully and demonstrates that promise, you know, generations and generations and generations later as he calls the people of God out of Egypt through Exodus, he, he, through, through signs and wonders, he demonstrates his supremacy and power over the nations, over the rulers of the age. Uh, he says that, you know, he, he systematically, like all the plagues in Exodus, shows that God is the real God and these other gods are false. They're actually fallen angels or demons and they're not as powerful as the one true God. And he brings his people out of Egypt and he gives them a new way to live. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and he gives them the covenant, and so all kinds of laws, all kinds of things, and, and that all those are very particular to those people in that time. But the Ten Commandments are, I think, valuable. They're something that we should think about, we should focus on. And so in Exodus 20, it says this, and I love the preamble of, uh, of, the, of, of the Ten Commandments. In these first couple of verses, it says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the important context of every command that comes from God. Is it, ha it takes place in that story. God is bringing us out of slavery. All right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And I find great comfort in that promise that comes along with that commandment when I look at what happens politically in our country. God will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. And so, I'm sorry, I just, this is a little aside, this is kind of a little, but like, we can trust in that. We can trust that God is a just judge, and we can take comfort in that. And so when people misuse his name, God will take care of those people, and God will make it right. I don't have to be God's lawyer. I don't have to be God's defender. I don't have to straighten out everybody who's wrong. I can rest and trust that God will be a just judge and that there is justice in the world, not because I make it so or because I work hard or because I pray enough or because I have the powerful argument on Facebook about it, uh, but because God is a just judge and he is working justice in the world and in the cosmos, God will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. And I find great comfort in that and uh, relief from my need to fix everything and fix everyone and fix everybody's 
theology. All right, so then in verse 8, we get to the, the part that is maybe perhaps more relevant for us. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That word holy just means set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants. You can think of that as employees, right? Nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For, six, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This idea that everybody gets to rest. And then you see in Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy is interesting because Deuteronomy literally means a second giving of the law. It's sort of like a commentary on a lot of the, on a lot of the content from uh, a lot of the legal covenant content from Exodus and Leviticus and, and even a little bit in Numbers. Deuteronomy is sort of like, hey, before we actually move into this rest, before we actually move into this promised land, let's just review and get some things right. It's kind of like Moses' last statement to the people that he's been leading through this, through this journey through the wilderness and leading them out of slavery and into freedom. Sadly, Moses doesn't get to go into the rest of the promised land. He doesn't actually get to enter into God's rest that way. Uh, he, has to, he, he dies on a mountain outside of the promised land. But, uh, but he, gives this, he gives this kind of retelling or this reframing, kind of a review of the law, commentary on it. That's what Deuteronomy is. And, and so Deuteronomy's version of this Sabbath law and the Ten Commandments, you can find the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy, and it has some differences. And, it, and in verse 14, it says this, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. He wants to make that just a little more emphasized, a little more clear, that you're not supposed to exploit people, Anyone who works for you needs a day off, all right? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so just this understanding that the, the Hebrew people, they were people who slavery was part of their story, right? Oppression was part of their story. And so... In commanding people to rest and commanding people to provide for rest for their animals and their kids and all of their family and all of their neighbors, even their pagan neighbors, even their neighbors who they don't just, that they don't agree with theologically, even their neighbors who don't worship the Lord, you're supposed to provide this rest so that you can tell the story of a God who brings people out of slavery and into freedom. That Exodus narrative is so foundational to everything we read in Scripture. It is all about God bringing people out of slavery and into his rest and into community with him and into the dignity that he has designed every human being to enjoy. And so then Jesus comes along and Jesus provides for this and, and, and fulfills this in an ultimate way. Jesus fulfills this story. He fulfills the law and the covenants in a, in a final and unique way. And so Jesus actually says this right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of the Sermon on the Mount. What it is, is it's really kind of Jesus' commentary on the whole law. 
And it's so masterfully awesome and beautiful because he does it in three chapters. He says so much that is so convicting and so powerful and sums up all of this, all of this stuff that, you know, like you have pages and pages and chapters and chapters of this Levitical code. Jesus takes it all and just boils it down to something that is readable, that is a lot more transmissible, and that really gets to the heart of all these comments and all this commentary. And so what, what G- the Sermon on the Mount is, is this is Jesus taking Torah, he's taking Jewish law, and he's clarifying it. And he's really bringing it into focus and saying, this is what it's really all about. And it's so powerful, it's so awesome. And he says this right in the middle of that Sermon on the Mount. He says this, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay? For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as every other uh, gospel puts it. And so this idea is that really, like Jesus didn't come to obliterate or abolish the Sabbath. Jesus came to clarify and intensify it. Jesus came to make Sabbath rest something that we do more, not less. He didn't mean to make it something that, uh, that we just dismiss and, and forget. Like those Ten Commandments, I don't think we would say any, I, I, I don't think that we would say anything else in that list is like not something that we need to take seriously, right? Like graven images, we take that pretty seriously. Adultery, we take that pretty seriously. A murder, yeah, like that commandment stands. And the Sabbath that one stands, y'all. That is, a, that is a thing that is important. That is, that is a thing that matters and needs to be built into the structure of our life. The people of God are people who practice Sabbath as an act of faith. We need to engage with what it means to do rest because we don't do rest well as Americans. I think if, any, if anything we've learned over this whole pandemic experience it's that, man, we, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to take time off. We don't know how to, it, it is so foreign and it was so life-altering and life-shaking. And as we kind of get back into the groove of things and as we kind of regather, reopen, do all these things, I think it's important for us to remember that God has designed us for rest. And if we're going to practice rest, if we're really going to engage in this practice of Sabbath that is deeply Christian and goes beyond Christianity, back into the, the Jewish roots of Christianity, then we are going to have to deal with how we think about some things. And we're going to have to change our thinking from our sort of hijacked Protestant work ethic that has been completely, um, you know, just manipulated and, and, uh, and, and pulled off course by capitalism, right? Like, like in America, we kind of have this Puritan heritage and we have this Protestant work ethic idea that was part of the culture, is part of the religious teaching, part of the, the mindset. And so you, you have this idea of a calling, like there's something that you're put on earth to do. And you're supposed to devote yourself to that work like intensely, 
right? You're supposed to give yourself to your vocation, to this idea that God has given you a calling. You're called to be a doctor, or you're called to be a teacher, or you're called to be a mom or a dad or a, 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 you know, a worker or whatever. Like, you have a calling. You have a purpose in society, and it's important. And it's important to give yourself to that work as an act of worship and to do that well, to work as unto the Lord, and that's really good. And then capitalism comes along and hijacks that and says, yeah, so we're going to need you 50 hours a week minimum. We're going to need you to, you know, live and breathe and work this company culture. We're going to need you to be here all the time. We're going to need you to, yeah, blah, blah. And, and so, like, all of our work and all of our energy and so much of our culture is animated and possessed by a spirit of greed that hijacks that work ethic, that hijacks that mindset. And so if we're going to practice Sabbath, Sabbath rest, we have, to, we have to do it as an act of faith. It's countercultural. It doesn't, it doesn't exactly jive uh, with the way the world works. And let me just say that it's not just American culture. That's every human culture. Every human culture struggles with this to some degree, struggles with understanding what it means to practice Sabbath. And so one way that Sabbath rest is an act of faith is that Sabbath rest really challenges our proclivity to worry. Sabbath rest is an invitation to trust God that if I take a day off, if I really do nothing, if I really recognize my need to rest and recharge and to, to pull myself back, to say nothing, to do nothing in a situation, to not be the one who makes something happen, to not be the one who is at the center of everything, then I, like, I'm worried things will fall apart if I don't pick up the pieces, right? If I'm not responsible, who will be? And so it's very natural, very natural for us to be tempted by worry when we try to engage in this act of Sabbath. If we're really going to, to get kind of a little bit religious about taking a 24-hour period off, or if we're really going to say, hey, you know, I need to trust someone else to watch my kids so I can get some rest, or I need to trust someone else to show up for me in this way. Like, we're worried about that. And so then when Jesus says this a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? When we practice Sabbath, part of what we have to do is trust that God will pick up the pieces, that the world will keep spinning, that it will go on without us doing whatever it is that we think that we must be doing. If I don't you know, do that thing, I got to trust that God is going to take care of it, that everything is going to be okay, and that the world doesn't revolve around me working hard to make everything happen, right? Another thing that Sabbath rest does that's important is it dethrones efficiency and productivity. You know, I love to be productive. I love to do things. I love to produce. I love making sure that the work I do is efficient and that I uh, am doing the thing that is going to be the most effective, like I don't like wasting time. Efficiency isn't bad, but this spirit of greed that 
so animates and possesses all the work that we do in American culture and just in human culture, like that can really twist everything and it can, and, and efficiency and productivity and bottom lines and demands for ever increasing uh, productivity, like uh, that can kind of, there, there's, a, there's a spiritual power in that. There's something dark that exploits people in that. And if we're not careful, we can either fall into getting exploited ourselves or come, become so demanding of other people, and particularly if we're in places of management or in, in uh, positions of influence, to demand so much from people that it becomes exploited and greedy and we're asking too much. And so this act of Sabbath, this idea that we have to practice Sabbath, this has economic impacts, right? Like to really practice Sabbath and to really rest well, you have to say, look, the bottom line, the things that we produce, the stuff that we gather, the work, that, the work of our hands and, and the stuff of life is less important than the people. And if I'm going to honor the image of God and others, if I'm going to find place to really enjoy God myself and find ways to really uh, connect and recharge and, and just rest, obeying that command to Sabbath, then that's going to have some financial impact on me. I might earn a little less. I might not get the promotion. I might not get everything that is a thing that I want. And we see this is really built into the structure of the law. So I'm, we're going to Leviticus. Let's look at Leviticus 25. So Leviticus 25, there's this idea that there's not just Sabbath days, right? It's not just every seventh days. There's also Sabbath years. And every, every seven periods of those Sabbath years, there's a, what's called the year of Jubilee. And so just kind of look at this. Think about the financial ramifications and impact that this would have on a culture. So the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, when you enter the land of rest, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. The land needs a break, right? Don't just keep extracting resources. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath, a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields. Or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for for yourself, for your male and female servants, for the hired worker, and for the temporary resident who lives among you, as well as for your livestock and for the wild animals of your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Count off, and okay, so the idea here is that like every seven years, you, you let some things go. You let the vineyard go. You let, the, you let the, the, uh, the, the wine, right? The wine is kind of a luxury. You let the wine go. You say, I'm not going to extract so much. I'm going to be a bit more austere so that I can rest. Right? We're not going to extract the work and the labor and, uh, and the resources and the energy to get everything we can squeeze out of that vineyard. We're not going to get everything that we can squeeze out of our employees, out of our servants, out of our animals, out of, our, out of just the soil, right? And so then it says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. 
So that, that on the seventh Sabbath year amounts to a period of 49 years, seven times seven. We get that, all right? And so then in verse 9 it says, Then have a trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. So this is idea is that really there's a like a redistribution of the resources that like anybody who sold land or property that like you you come back and you just through through the claim of ancestry based on God's law of who gets what parcel of land as that is described very probably rather boringly and in detail in those Levitical codes uh, that everybody's supposed to return to like their family unit and they get what God gave them as an inheritance and so there's a, a, a leveling of the playing field this these have real financial ramifications in fact the ramifications are probably so intense that we don't really have evidence that it ever happened historically that the year of jubilee ever actually took place the, the Israelites were never able to actually live up to this high ideal at least that's kind of the, the understanding when we read the history in scripture we see that but there's this idea that really, like, it's not about the bottom line. Our life can't be about that. It has to be about people and relationship and a sense of community and family and dignity for every person, for the foreigner, for the sojourner, for the low-level employee, for the entry-level position, for the person who works for someone else, for the servants, everyone, top of society, down to the lower levels, right? And if we're going to do this, here's the thing. Sabbath rest is an act of faith because it requires us to lean on other people. It requires us to be a community. It requires that everyone do their part and that we rely on other people to do their part and to show up when they say they're going to show up and to do the things that they say that they're going to do so that Everyone gets a chance to relax. Everyone gets rhythms of breaks, and everyone gets the opportunity to relax. And this is, this is key to this idea of chosen family that we find throughout the New Testament, and this idea that when people came to the church, it was, they were baptized in to a community that really loved and supported them, that really cared for them, that they kind of lived together. It was like, almost like a commune kind of a thing. Is what really happened in, in the early church. And this radical practice of hospitality extended on. Well, of course, the, the problem with that is that some people take advantage. When you start giving things away, people start to get a little too comfortable relying on other people to meet all their needs. And so there has to be mutuality. There has to be give and take. If, there, if a family is going to enjoy health, it has to be, you know, some people, so everyone takes their turn. Everyone does, a, does their chores. Everyone gives. Everyone participates fully in the life of the community. And so if we're going to be able to enjoy that rest, it requires some nuts and bolts of people taking their turn. And so then Paul kind of addresses some people not taking their turn in 2 Thessalonians, particularly in chapter 3. This is probably the reason he wrote the letter. He says a lot of nice things before this. But then in chapter 3, he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and who does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow 
our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. No one who is unwilling to work, or sorry, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies, right? Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate it with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Right? Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And so Paul says, look, it's important in Christian communities that nobody's being taken advantage of. And if there are people who are just taking and not also contributing, then you need to call them out on it. You need to draw a boundary and you need to say, look, if you want to be part of this thing, you got to give to this thing. And I got to say that I am so proud of our church. You know, one of the things that happens with being part of a church plant or a smaller church, a church that's still gathering critical mass, still gathering steam, still, still very active and reaching out to other people is that everyone gets to play, right? And like, if everybody doesn't play, it's not happening. Like, and that's, that's, that is a challenge. I know it's real, I know it's felt. I know that at times it can feel exhausting. It can feel exhausting for me. But the invitation to God is to trust that he will provide. The invitation from God is to trust that God will provide what we need as a community and that everyone who is able to give what they can give, that that will be enough and that, that it'll be okay. If somebody doesn't show up to make coffee and we don't have a coffee person, then, hey, guess what? Maybe we can go without, you know, extracting all the labor from that vineyard this year. Maybe we can do without coffee for Sunday and we'll survive, right? If, if people need to switch, switch Sundays, like, whatever. Like, but it's, it's important that every person find what it is that they have to give and what it is that they have to offer the community and that we offer that. Because if we don't show up for each other, it becomes unsustainable and we can't rest. We can't relax if we don't make and keep the commitments that we need to make and keep for each other. If we don't say, yeah, you can count on me for this and I'll be here at that time. And then we show up at that time. That's what creates a sense of anxiety. That's what breaks trust and that eventually erodes and hurts communities. And so it takes work to be able to relax and trust that somebody else has it covered. And we've got we've to show up for ourselves and we've got to be the people who can be trustworthy so that, uh, so that we can trust each other, so that everybody gets a chance to have a break. All right, so let's land in Matthew 12 and then we'll pray for each other here, okay? So here's the thing. Jesus, in his practice of Sabbath, broke a lot of rules, Right? And so I probably said some things that left you scratching your head today, thinking, well, I thought, Jesus, I thought Jesus said we didn't have to be super religious about this. I think, well, kind of, all right? 
But this is, so let's just read this story and kind of watch what Jesus does with the rule-keeping aspects of Sabbath. This is what he says this is, and what he does. At that, time, Jesus went throughout, through, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. So they're, they're actually living in accordance to, to gleaning laws. You know, you're supposed to leave a little bit of your field on the edge so that people who are hungry... Uh, and, and who are kind of starving, just like on a subsistence level of living, are able to have something to eat. So the foreigner, the traveler, uh, the poor, the widow, they can eat. Well, guess where Jesus' people are? They're poor, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> this simple life, sometimes ain't nothing simple about it. Like, it, you know, like, trying to make ends meet and figure out what do we do with the limited resources? How do we do church without coffee? How do we do church without the volunteers we need? How do we... Right? And so they're in that place. Jesus himself and his like entourage are going and they're 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 hungry. And so they're saying, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna rub this wheat together, I'm gonna get a little snack because I'm starving. Right? When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? And then Jesus is going to make reference to another Bible story here. He says, He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was unlawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Right? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. It's kind of like he's like pushing it even a little more. Right? Like, and a man was, with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. He was, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus operates from a place not of rule-keeping, but of resting in God. And when we rest in God, when we enter God's presence, when we have community and relationship with a loving Father who is capable to care for our needs, who is able to defend us against false accusation, who is able to empower us, who is actually the source of healing, not our faith, right? Like we, our job is to trust and obey. God is the one who makes things happen, right? 
So what's on our side of the line, we come to him and trust him. He does the rest. Okay? Right? So it's not how hard you pray. It's not how many times you pray. It's not, do you trust him and do you live out of that life? Is it your mode that you trust and rest in God, that he wants to heal and that that's his, that's his MO, that's who he is? That kind of prayer is so much less anxious. It's so much more healing. It's so much better than the prayer of, I've got to make this happen. I've got to do this. I've got to force this. That's, that's the wrong attitude. Jesus heals from a place of absolute trust, and he ministers from a place of absolute rest and trust. He's withdrawing from the crowds. He's getting out of the spotlight. He's withdrawing to a place where he can be with God and rest with God. And guess what? People come to him, and they're still healed, and the gospel still advances. We're not going to, through our striving and pain, make the world right. That's not how it happens. We make the world right when we get right ourselves with the Lord, when we rest in his presence and he changes us. And then that flows through us from a heart of gratitude, from a heart of peace, from a heart of real well-being and shalom to the people around us. And that's the rest that we're invited to experience as we pray for each other right now. Would you stand up?